listeners, I'm Kohad. And I'm Iman. And you're tuned into another episode of Name It. Your encyclopedia of big ideas changing how we think about the world and talk to each other. Today, our big idea is, cue drum roll please. The Wake by Christina Sharp. But as always, before we get into our big idea, we're going to start with a case study. So our case study today is the story of the Clotilda, which is the last known slave ship to bring West African people to the United States in 1860. The ship captured and forcibly moved 110 people, including women and children, from what is now present-day Benin. These would be the last known people to complete the Middle Passage through the Atlantic Ocean. And in 2019, the ship was discovered at none other than the bottom of the Mobile River in Alabama. Not only was the Clotilda breaking news in 2019, and continues to be, because it is the last known slave ship, but it is also currently the most well-preserved. And what I find the most interesting about the discovery of the actual remains of the ship in 2019 is that the descendants of those original 110 enslaved Africans have known about the Clotilda and its likely known location in the Mobile River for the past 160 years, long before the actual physical discovery of the ship. Yeah. So let me give you the fast and short of how the Clotilda came to be. A rich white man named Timothy Muir bet that he could import enslaved Africans into Mobile, Alabama. And the Africatown documentary said that the initial bet he made was for $100,000. Even though the importation of enslaved Africans had been made illegal over 50 years prior, the cotton boom had made slavery more profitable than ever for enslavers like him. So he hires William Foster as the captain, and Foster and his crew turn a trading schooner into a slave ship. And this is important because they find like the actual pieces of them converting the schooner into the slave ship when they first like go down into the river. Right. So they set sail for the kingdom of Dahomey, which is now, as Kohar said, present day Benin in West Africa. And they capture 110 people and bring them back to Mobile, Alabama to be worked, used and sold by Mir. The passage took a total of six weeks, and get this, and the hold that held 110 enslaved ancestors is still fully intact. It was 23 feet long and between 18 and 23 feet wide and less than seven feet high. At most, that is 529 square feet. And I did some Googles. And just as a comparison, that's about one-tenth of an NBA basketball court. Again. Thank you for that helpful frame of reference. As always. As always. Again, that was 110 people chained in a hold for six weeks in a 529 square foot space. After the Coltilda returned to Alabama, Muir and Foster obviously knew that what they did was illegal, and some articles said that they had basically the feds on their tail. So Foster and Muir ordered that the ship be burned and sunk in the Mobile River in Alabama to avoid being jailed, and it remains in that river to this day. To avoid being jailed. So literally, it's like you knew you were guilty, huh? Interesting. Mm. Yeah. And also interesting enough, you also thought that you would be implicated by the law. Right. Interesting. Interesting. So five years later in 1865, when the Civil War reached Mobile, the enslaved who had been working for Mir wanted to return to their home in West Africa, but they didn't have the means. And for me, this like really strikes me because it makes me think about all of the kids 
who would have been a part of that 110 and that they would have very well had memories of their homes and families by the time that they were freed. So they originally traded and worked the land for their former enslaver, Mir, and 34 of them eventually saved enough money to buy land on the Mobile River. And they called the settlement in their community Africatown. Africatown had a chief, schools, churches, and their own legal system. Well, this is the perfect place to mention that Mir still has a state park named after him in Mm -hmm. Mobile, Alabama, and that this land is still such a huge place of contestation Mm -hmm. and conflict today, but that Africatown really represents this piece of sovereignty and living history because of those descendants. So Africatown still stands today, and its residents, who include the descendants of the enslaved, were told about the Clotilde since childhood through oral history accounts, much like, you know, we were taught our histories that don't necessarily have a very, you know, physical trace in the archive. We go through stories and we hear in songs. So thanks to these stories and these songs and these other cultural pieces of history that have stayed alive, this knowledge was passed down to them over the decades. And that linked them back to the original 34 formerly enslaved leaders who founded the community. And the ship's location at the bottom of the river was largely considered a myth, interesting enough, Mm -hmm. to people who were outside of these circles until it was, quote unquote, officially discovered in 2019. So this is a very interesting case of a slave ship that was preserved that is still living and that the whole community that descended from it knew about its existence but didn't know exactly where it was until it was kind of unearthed as this big discovery. And that is to say, like most history, a lot of the unofficial stories that we already know of, we know as the truth, but don't always see the light if they're not, you know, confirmed or found as evidence. Exactly. So for example, in a lot of the articles I was reading, they were interviewing the descendants of the enslaved people and also current Africatown residents. So for example, Charlie Lewis was a founder of Africatown and his great great granddaughter, Lorna Gale Woods, shared with reporters that she had been hearing about the ship that tore their family from their homeland since she was a little girl growing up in Africatown. Jocelyn Davis, another descendant of Africatown founder, Charlie Lewis, said, quote, The ship in itself doesn't make it real to me. Just knowing my ancestors were documented, that books were written, those were enough for me. But the ship was the icing on the cake. Oof. I don't blame Mm -hmm. you. She been new. Yeah, exactly. So fun fact, have you seen the documentary Summer of Soul? Of course. That's my favorite. I played in the background. I love that. I mean, we've mentioned it in other episodes, so it's very closely linked to this story because the musician and the director of that film, Amir Questlove Thompson, who goes by Questlove as I understand Mm -hmm. it, he's descended from the survivors of the ship, of the Clotilda. And he discovered this on the genealogy show Finding Your Roots with historian Henry Louis Gates Jr. And Gates basically told him, You hit the jackpot. Mm. And as someone who is descended from enslaved people, as you can relate as well, Iman, Mm -hmm. the Clotilda is an outlier and an anomaly in a lot of ways within the broader history of slavery, especially across the Middle Passage, because most slave ships were intentionally burned. They were destroyed. They were submerged. Just as you saw that Mir said, you know, 
I don't want to be jailed because mm-hmm. technically I'm not supposed to be transporting mm-hmm. these people. Mm-hmm. Burn all evidence. Mm-hmm. And the truth is that that was the whole point of this erasure was to leave no trace of the existence of the ships, mm-hmm. a.k.a. the existence of the whole institution of slavery, exactly. which we know still as descendants lives alive and well on this land today, whether it's within the monuments, within the plantation houses, within the farms that have been converted. Mm-hmm. We know that this history is a present reality, which is really going to get us into our big ideas. Absolutely. But, you know, before we get in. Yeah. So what's going on now? What's going to happen to the Clotilda? So the Alabama Historical Commission is considered the, quote, legal guardian of the Clotilda. And it seems pretty inconclusive on what exactly is going to happen to the ship and its remains. Some articles mention that they're assessing whether it's actually feasible to move the ship from the bottom of the river and actually take it out. And others are arguing that the ship should stay in the water to preserve the context and the history that it represents. But everything that I found mentioned that some some memorial on or near the river is going to be erected. Something that I think is the most important part of this story and what takes me back the most is that the descendants of those on the Clotilda had been working to preserve their ancestors' story and legacy since well before the ship was formally discovered in 2019. So in 1984, nine descendants of the original 110 formed the Africa Town Direct Descendants of the Clotilda Incorporated, with the group's mission being, quote, to preserve and perpetuate the culture and heritage of the last Africans brought to America to enlighten society about their descendants in Africa history. Now, present day, the group goes simply by the Clotilda Descendant Association, and their mission states, we will forever tell their stories, uphold their legacies, build the Africatown Museum and Performing Arts Center to honor them and others who helped shape the community, and press for the accountability of the crime that was the Clotilda. Mm, The crime Mm -hmm. that was... The Clotilda. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that inclusion and that beautiful statement. Yeah. The Clotilda Descendants Association. So we're going to talk a lot more about the Clotilda in our TLDR segment. But as always, you can find links to the articles we referenced and to the documentary in our show notes. So our big idea is The Wake by Christina Sharp. And what Sharp's idea of The Wake is going to introduce <clears throat> is that all those slave ships like the Clotilda aren't whipping and running across the Atlantic anymore. They have not left, that they're still here structuring our lives. Mm, Ain't that the truth? Literally. (laughs) So before we get into our big idea, I'm going to introduce the engineer behind our big idea, Mm -hmm. Dr. Christina Sharp. So Dr. Sharp is a writer, professor, and Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Black Studies and the Humanities at York University. She is the author of In the Wake on Blackness and Being, published by Duke University Press in 2016, and Monstrous Intimacies, Making Post-Slavery Subjects, also published by Duke in 2010. Don't we all want a Duke University Press book? That's my nerd goal. Now that you have the goal. Yeah. Gonna happen. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to give you the TLDR, which stands for Too Long Didn't Read of Sharps in the Wake on Blackness and Being. And this is the part of the show where we do the reading so you don't have to, but as always, you can find all the reading in our show notes. Yes. So Sharp uses three different meanings of the word wake to make an argument about the nature of time and what it means to be black today in the afterlife of slavery to employ Sidia Hartman's term. So the first definition of the wake Sharp uses is the track left on the water surface by a ship. So 
It's all the waves and the ripples we see in the water even after a ship is out of sight. And she uses this definition of the wake as a metaphor to argue that since the start of the transatlantic slave trade nearly 500 years ago, we have and continue to live in its wake. That the waves of the very first slave ships are still, in our contemporary moment, splashing against us and structuring our worlds. And the Clotilda and Africatown are a perfect example of this. Africatown, like a lot of historically black neighborhoods and communities, were created as a reprieve from anti-blackness and spaces of black autonomy, but they are still utterly impacted by evolving forms of anti-blackness. So, for example, in 2017, 1,200 residents of Africatown filed a lawsuit against International Paper, who built a paper plant in 1928 on land sold to them by the Mears. And from what I can tell, it was the original slaver, Tim Mears' son, who sold the land to International Paper. And he sold this company land along the same waterways as Africatown. So the environmental group filing the lawsuit claims that International Paper's improper handling of waste through the decades contaminated the land and water, that the company did not clear up the site as required after closing the plant, and this has caused higher rates of cancer amongst Africatown residents since the 20th century. Mm, the same story. Literally. Exactly. And so what using Sharp's metaphor of the wake allows us to do is to challenge linear progress narratives that suggest that just because time moves on, that the Emancipation Proclamation happened, that the Voting Rights Act passed, that we get further and further away from the impact of slavery. That just because the original 110 who led to the founding of Africatown were freed, the anti-blackness that led to the Clotilda setting sail is the same anti-blackness that allowed slavers and their descendants to sell their lands to big companies who poison black communities. It's the same content in a different form, that black folks are still very much so in the hold and we live in the wake. And we can see other examples of the way that environmental justice plays out as anti-blackness in Flint and now in Jackson, Mississippi. Mm, For sure. So moving on to the second definition of the wake that Sharp uses is to make an argument about citizenship and black folks' relationship to the state. So I love how she has three different definitions Mm -hmm. because each one serves as such a good metaphor. Totally. So another definition of wake, which I actually didn't know either. (laughs) Yeah is it means to be in the recoil of the gun, a.k.a. the kickback or backward movement that the shooter feels after shooting. So if you've ever shot any gun, I don't think I have actually, but I hear it hurts. Like (laughs) It's the recoil or that kickback that kind of thrusts you back Mm -hmm. just to move forward. And that's why I think it's actually the perfect metaphor. Mm -hmm. So she draws on the death of Eric Garner, the non-guilty verdict gifted to George Zimmerman despite him murdering Trayvon Martin, and other, quote, ongoing state sanctions, legal and extra-legal murders of black people, end quote, to argue that to be black in this country is to exist in the recoil of a gun, to be in the wake of the state's continued violence. And she's using all of these examples of police violence to argue that to live life as a black person is to live a life, open quote, in the imminence of death, end quote. That one guilty verdict, such as that given to Ted Wafer in the murder of Renisha McBride in 2014, was simply a little breathing room before the next onslaught, to take her quote directly. Mm -hmm. She says that in the weather of the wake, and the weather is fundamentally anti-Black, one cannot trust, support, or condone the state's application of something they call justice, but one can only hold one's breath for so long. 
That's amazing. I'm just like, I'm such a nerd because this is like exactly what I love. I just think it's so ingenious Mm -hmm. when like academics find a word and they just stretch this word and they make so many metaphors and arguments about what it means to live in this world they do. And I just love this. This is reminding me a lot of The Black Shoals by Tiffany Lithabo King. Mm, I've never heard of that. Oh my gosh. Very similar. I would put them in the same class Mm. as using these very physical and kind of geological metaphors to explain, you know, these really, really big concepts or big ideas. So I love that. Yeah. So we are not done. We've got the next and last definition that Sharp uses of the wake. And this is probably the one that I was and folks are probably most familiar with. And that is the watching of relatives and friends beside the body of a dead person. So at a wake, what does one do? You call in the person's spirit, you sing their favorite songs, you eat their favorite food, you keep them alive by keeping their memory alive. So Sharp says that it's our job as black folks and scholars who study blackness to undertake what she calls wake work. And she defines wake work as the different ways black folks keep breath in the black body despite our anti-black realities. And she distinguishes wake work from the quote, work of melancholia and mourning and instead she defines wake work as the quote ways of seeing and imagining responses to terror ways that attest to the modalities of black life lived in as under and despite black death so sharp in her book she turns to black art visual culture in literature to look at all the ways black folks breathe life into ourselves and imagine beyond the frame of anti-blackness. But we can also read and talk about the descendants of the Clotilda and their efforts to keep their ancestors' memories alive as wake work. And they've been doing this wake work since before 2019 when the Clotilda became this archaeological and historical treasure. And so I was really struck at how the Africatown direct descendants of the Clotilda Inc.'s website, that's a name, mentioned that they didn't start the formal organization until 1984, not because their descendants didn't pass down their stories to them or that there wasn't a lack of interest, but that Africa town descendants had not previously wanted to publicly discuss their history because the slave-owning Muir family, again, like we mentioned, there's a state park named after them, still controlled most of Mobile, Alabama. So they worried that some form of retaliation would happen to them if they made their family history's public memory. And I do have to say, I do like that most of the news coverage on the Clotilda emphasized, really emphasized that prior to the 2019 finding, these residents, these descendants, these family members have long been tracking their family genealogies and creating their own archives on the Clotilda's descendants in Africatown. So Africatown residents wake work as their own archivists, genealogists, and historians is exactly the thing that Sharp is trying to name when she defines wake work. Yes. She's just supplying a term for what already exists. Yes. A long tradition of remembering and of truly, I would say, defending their right to their history. Mm -hmm. And as someone who is Black and Native from this part of the country, the East Coast, I have a particular relationship with, quote unquote, wake work, as you'd call it. Mm As someone who's dealing with a very similar case like the Clotilda in my own hometown of Worcester, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So the little rundown, which I know, Iman, you've heard of it a little bit. No, give me. I haven't haven't heard the whole story. It's quite a crazy story. Let me hear it. And I think this is actually the perfect case to kind of mention it. 
So basically, there are three mishunash, which is the plural for mishun, and a mishun is a dugout canoe, often made out of, you know, birch bark or another type of tree. Mm-hmm. And it's a long and arduous process that takes hours and days of just physically carving out a canoe in this traditional way. And the biggest discovery in our tribe in my history of ever being alive, but also in the history of our tribe since 1640, is that the ship, that a canoe from that time period, so basically a 400-year-old now ancestral treasure, archaeological find, artifact, whatever you would name it, Mm -hmm. but really a living, physical, tangible connection to our ancestors, was discovered at the bottom of Lake Quinsigamond in 2001. Oh my gosh. And there are three. Two others were found after that, but three in total. So the first one that's most intact was carbon dated to around 1640, Wow. which coincides to our genocide during that time period often masked as King Philip's War, but like that's when our lands were taken, when we were sent. A huge conglomeration of our tribe was sent to die on Deer Island in Boston Harbor. So in the same way, like we know the history that it was so closely linked to our dispossession, just like the Clotilda descendants understand that this ship represents slavery. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, this is different because we, our ancestors, made the ship. But I bring this up because it speaks to that larger question of Afro-indigeneity, the sovereignty of the greater Black diaspora, and our claims to our ancestral homeland. Because guess where the ship was found by our tribal members? Guess how we discovered that it was even found? I was going to ask, how did you guys know that it was there? So on none other, guess, at the turn of the century, 2001, eBay. Shut up. eBay. Consumerism. Yep. Yep. Anyways, I don't even know yet. No, it's truly like what you think it is. So it was discovered by a white recreational diver. And he had no idea. I don't think he knew how old it was. He just said like Nipmuc artifact at bottom of Lake Quinsigamond. And one of our tribal members who started Project Machoon, go to our website in the same way as the Clotilda people. She was like, oh my gosh, you don't understand what you found. I'm a tribal member like please give it back to us or like let's start a conversation you have no right yeah over you have no cl- <laughs> discovery does not equate to ownership like, yeah surprise surprise so i think he did you know kind of submit or understand that like i think he just complied in a way you have to go to the website to find more about this history but we're dealing with that same issue for the past 20 years wow of whether we need a museum whether we should keep it in the water to preserve it, or what the right move is to do for our ancestors. And it's a huge question, but all I can say is I relate to this idea of wake work because we are truly living in the wake of all this history because it's truly a living, a living history. It's not something that's just dead. And in that same way, we're creating so much conversation around it, like it never really ended, but we were talking to actually an Armenian mentor of ours my sister and I this past week and he was just like just take it out of the water and he was just saying like the pollution of this water is actually what he worries about and there was like I think it was six million gallon spill of sewage in Lake Quinsigamond this year wow it's condemned you can't really swim in it in the same way and now it's been overtaken by has been since the late 19th century by crew regattas and you know recreational boating yeah and all the shore is now swallowed up by private ownership wow because that is where Worcester was founded between you know Worcester and Shrewsbury that Mm. this is all to say that 
the Clotilda is just one example amongst many that, you know, people that have been dispossessed are like, one, seeking to reclaim, but also are very much aware of our own history and are just like, where do we go from here? Do we move for ourselves or do we kind of take it up as this form of education for ourselves and our connection to our future? And I'll let you know. I'll keep you updated on how it goes. Oh, my gosh. Now you know. Every day I just learn something new about you. Yeah. And it makes me fall in love with you even more. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to be like, they love each other. Obviously. Besties forever. That's why I live with you. Yes. No, but definitely, truly, I am even still learning so much about this, and it's such a like a deeply nuanced conversation, and that there's truly like no right way to go about it, and yeah. I think that's what makes it difficult. But it also warmed my heart to see Africa Town is existing alive and well, and if those descendants didn't like name that town, if we're speaking about naming it, yeah as they did and passed down their stories and just kind of named the violence, would it have been preserved in memory the way it was? Probably not. Absolutely. And we're kind of dealing with that opposite issue where like, yes, we have so much of these tangible connections, but the in-between chapter of history kind of falls away. Like we know what we know, yeah, but we don't exactly know how it got there. And it's like we're filling in the pieces today. Wow. You're yeah. out here. You're doing wake work. You're yes. doing it. Try yeah. my best. And so to me, The Wake is a book on theory and method, obviously, but it's also a call to action, exactly like you were just saying, Kohar, one that insists that its readers name and narrate Black life today as an extension of what our ancestors experienced to not draw. We cannot, it's impossible to draw hard and fast distinction between the past and present to narrate the now. Exactly what mm-hmm. we're trying to do here at Name It Podcast. I'm trying. And like one idea that I think that really stuck with me about this book is that Sharp draws on Dion Brand's idea of the door of no return. And that is basically, I think, perhaps a more well-known image of slave ships departing from Africa is this idea of like this room that has like this one little door. It's like a dark room. It has one little door that just looks out into the ocean. And so this would be the room that they would hold the people that they had captured in. They would hold them in this room before bringing them onto the ship. And so the door of no return, like, you know, metaphorically and figuratively takes up this door and calls it the door of no return because that would be the last time that these people would set foot in their homelands. And so Sharp says that the door of no return needs to be burned onto our retinas, that our ancestors and slavery's power should always be in our visual field, and that it's our jobs to also see blackness and black life beyond this frame. So seeing the frame and within it, but also beyond it. And to look at black life as like being the magic it takes to just persist and find joy and imagine beyond the anti-blackness and powers that be that structure our lives. So thank you, Christina Sharp, for your words, for your scholarship, for your reminder. This is one of those books that I have probably been assigned in, in three different classes. And every single time I return to it, I just like I can feel it in my body. I feel like it just like really mm. just like sits with me and like takes me over in a way. So as always, we're so grateful for all of the people who bring us these ideas and like give us the language to name and see our world differently. Period. Thank you, Dr. Christina Sharp. Mm-hmm. So switching gears, let's close out on a bit of a lighter note and get into our half-baked thoughts. And half-baked is a segment of the show where we share thoughts and observations that we haven't fully fleshed out, but we stand fully behind. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Let's go. So I'll start. 
if you have my name on a piece of paper and you look at that piece of paper and then you look up into the crowd and then you look down at that piece of paper and then you look back up and you identify the only other or black person in the room. And then you look down at that paper and then you say, I really want to say your name, but I'm afraid I'm going to mispronounce it. That is a thousand times more offensive to me than you actually mispronouncing my name. <laughs> Because I already know I'm another. <laughs> I'm a black, I'm another, I'm a woman, I'm Muslim, whatever. And you're just calling it out to everyone. Mm. So that's way more offensive. That seems like a nice way of saying, I don't want to. I've heard, I'm not going to pronounce this because I don't know how to say it. Oh, yeah, yeah, And yeah. I'm like, okay, that just came across as rude. <laughs> so definitely relate. That just made me think of one time my family and I went to the airport and I mean, we all have very, very ethnic names. Yes, <laughs> you all do. We started cracking up because she was trying her best. And it was so lighthearted and funny. I can't even tell you how off it was. And with each name she said, we were all laughing a little harder. But it was part of the joke. Like, we were not phased by it in a negative way. We were glad she was trying. And it's a good memory now. <laughs> and I just feel like people with non-ethnic names think that people with, like, these like non like Anglo names like get so offended when you mispronounce their name. Yeah. And you know, to each his own, I personally don't think it's that big of a deal the first time around. But like if you just don't even try, like mm -hmm. that's way more offensive. So basically it's lazy. just try. Just try. try. Do you have to try? Exactly. I'm aware not everyone can roll their R's. Kohar well, and Kohar I also go by. Yeah. As you should know. Yeah. But it's also like I really appreciate when people try. I like, it warms my heart. Same, yeah. same, absolutely. So, half-big thought. Half Give thought. it a try. What about you, boo? Okay, so, from a certified germaphobe. And you absolutely are one. Everyone has known me since I was a kid, actually. That's just who I am. So it is what it is. I'm gonna share this public service announcement. <laughs> if you are in the demographic in 2022, Literally years into the pandemic at this point, which it should not have taken this long for us to, you know, to kind of get with the program. If you're still using the bathroom and refusing to wash your hands and walking out, I cannot be your friend. No way. I don't want to be your friend either. And you deserve to go to jail. Yeah, you're done. You're done. <laughs> not that I support the prison industrial complex, <laughs> but no. You don't love yourself. You don't love the person next to you. <laughs> wash your hands. <laughs> Just wash them and pronounce our names. That's all. That's all. Simple request. Simple for... request. Absolutely. And stay healthy. Absolutely. As we're trying. As we're trying. This I week. know. This has been a this has been a nasally. We both episode. have lingering colds, but they're actually they're gone at this point. We just still sound like had me down. Had me down said, bad. This is kind of half big thought. We kind of sound like we're lacrosse players right now. <laughs> <laughs> All offense to lacrosse players. <laughs> so on that note, thank you so much for tuning in to Name It. You can find us on social media at Name It Pod and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Please rate and review this episode. Tell us what you liked, what you want to hear more of, or comment a big idea you want us to take on. You can catch the articles we reference and additional resources in our show notes and our Instagram page. And last but not least, please share with a friend. We are a new pod. We want this show to be as widely accessible and shared with as many people as possible. And we would absolutely love it that if you've listened to this, if you've learned something that you didn't know before, share the knowledge, spread the wealth. Yes, share with your grandma, mm -hmm. share with your auntie, mm -hmm. share with your cousin, share with your mom 
mother. Share with your Tinder DMs. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Share with your professor. Make it a requirement for Share that Share with your day. neighbor. Yes. Share. Because honestly, what stories like this, like the Clotilda, the whole point of you know, the colonizer winning is that it stayed, you know, out of sight and out of mind for this long. Yeah. And I think it's really important that we start to talk. Yeah. You know? And get as widely accessible the terms, the big ideas, and the words that help us name our lived realities and really, like, talk about this world for what it is as out there as possible. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And a huge thank you to the Poorview Center for Teaching and Learning and the Public Humanities at Yale for providing resources that help make this conversation possible today. Thanks so much. All right. See you guys later. Bye. 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 Bye